The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I have here a, uh, a cushion, a pillow from The Fuge. If you know um, what The Fuge is, it's our student room. It's right across the parking lot. We have a lot of different meetings and uh, ministries that meet in there. But The Fuge, if you've never been in there, if you walked in there, it's got a particular t- type of decor. It's all kind of restoration industrial vibe. Um, like this here is, is um, one of my favorite ar- artifacts in here because um, inside is actually a cushion that they got from like a thrift store and then they wrapped it in a, a burlap coffee sack as a cover. And that's just one example of the types of things in there. If you went in there, you'd see there's an old truck that's been sawn in half and part of it's over here and part of it's over there. You'd see there's tables made out of old oil drums and then they put a tabletop on top of it and so it's kind of a high top now. And then there's these chairs made out of oil drums and you see those things all around, and it's not just for the decor. I mean, it looks nice in there. It's not just for the look. It's not just to make it look like Pinteresty inside there. Okay, it's it's more than that. It's because there's there's a, a meaning behind that decor. Because all that you'll see around are old things, used things, discarded things, broken things. And they've all been taken, and by some of the more creative ones in our midst, have been taken and refashioned, reclaimed, reused, and made into a masterpiece of some kind, made into something usable, made into something on trend, made into something that looks nice and pulls everything together. That's the theme behind the decor. Why? Because that right there, that idea of the things that are broken or used up or on the sideline being brought in and finding new life, that's the type of story we want to see take place. We want to see walking into that room and walking into this room and walking into, our, into engaging our ministry, those who are hurting or broken or lost and being found. In fact, that's our story too, right? If we bear the name of Jesus, if we bear the name Christian, Christ, bear that name with us, that's going to be our story as well. We were lost, broken, hurting, wounded, and Jesus found us and made us new as in the process of making us new. And so, in fact, you might be journeying with us today, and you might say, look, I don't know that I've found Jesus yet, but I'm searching, and maybe what brought you into this space is that you've run into some brokenness or some hurt or some pain or maybe just a sense of lostness, and you're looking for that redemption to pull things around. That's what we want to be about as a church, and that's actually what's on display in this vibrant living color, in this picture we're looking at, in the story of Ruth. This story is basically communicating, this short story, it's really beautiful and it draws you in with the narrative. But the story is basically showing in vibrant detail what a redemption looks like. And so we're digging into that and discovering wherever you're at on your story, your story's not over yet. And so we're going to jump into part three here. We're going to look in chapter two. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, Open to Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, 
whose name was? Uh, it was okay. I mean, we talked about this last week, all right? You can't just say the name Boaz like Boaz, okay? You got to be like Boaz. I mean, it's, it's a powerful name. So let's try this again. Whose name was? Boaz. That's what we're talking about. All right, not bad. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. Okay, let's pause here for a second and just kind of like get back into this story. We're talking about, and those, these verses tell us about our three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Now, we haven't really met Boaz yet, but we're just about to meet him in this story. But we have met Naomi and Ruth. And if you were here these last couple weeks, you remember Naomi's story. It's a deep tragedy very tragic story. She recently lost her husband, Elimelech. He passed away. And she's grieving as a widow the loss of her husband and then loses both of her sons as well. And so now she's grieving the loss of her children and the loss of her husband, which is not only unbelievable grief, but at the same time, by, because of their ancient agricultural community that she's in, that's going to leave her pretty much financially destitute on a socioeconomic level. She is going to basically be at a beggar status. And so she's been pretty much devastated and in need of something to happen in her life to bring it around and redeem it. This young woman, Ruth, is from Moab. This is where Naomi was in a neighboring country. And her, this young woman is, was one of her daughters-in-law. She was married to one of the sons that died. So she's also a young woman, a young widow, finding herself in a similar situation as Naomi. So Ruth is clinging to Naomi, and they're trying to survive together. They leave Moab. They come back to Israel, to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. Okay, now they're there, and, and Ruth says to Naomi, Okay, why don't I go and glean in the field? which would be one of the only options they would have to survive. Now, understanding the process of gleaning is important to understanding how this story works. So here's how it goes. By ancient law, by Israelite law, so it's from God, God's law for his people, is that those who owned fields, which would have been very common, it's an agrarian society, the Israelite farmers are not to harvest everything all the way to the very edges, the last rows of their fields. They're supposed to harvest all the way to the edges, but leave the edges and the corners of their field so that the poor can come through and have a way to work and to, to glean this grain and to provide for their families. It's a beautiful way God set it up to take care of the poor. Now, notice what Ruth says. She says, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to try to find a field that I will find favor in the eyes of the owner. Now, that's a significant line because it kind of shows us the culture here. Just because it was God's law in Israel doesn't mean that everyone allowed it in their fields. In fact, by the context we know this happened in the period of Judges, there were many people that were not following God's law in Israel in this time period. 
So imagine, you don't know anybody because you're Ruth, you're from another country, you wander into someone's field who doesn't like people gleaning and you start taking their crop, they think you're stealing. So she's got to find the the field of someone that's going to allow her to glean, but there's more. On top of that, we learn from this story that it's, it's kind of a risky thing for a young woman to do, and there's some safety concerns, and if you think about it, it's not hard to imagine why. Imagine a young woman all the way at the edge of a field, deep into the field, all by herself. That's not necessarily the safest place for her to be. Imagine like a modern equivalent, like a young woman going for a run in a dark, abandoned alley. It's not a good idea. So she's like, I'm going to go try and go, I'm going to go gleaning. That's going to be a risk, but I'm going to provide for us, Naomi, and I'm going to try and find a field in who, in, of someone in whose favor that, that, I, that they find in me. And so she's going to try and find a safe place to glean. Well, what the narrator has told us is that there's a worthy man named Boaz. And he's, and he's cueing us, this narrator, by setting it up. So oftentimes, the, the Hebrew narrators will just leave the story to unfold and you learn about their, about their character. But the narrator's very clear. This is a good guy. This is a, this is a worthy man. And by setting it up out front, he's cueing us. Saying, as you're learning about redemption, watch Boaz very carefully. Learn from him. He's a model that you can learn from. He's going to be a key component of this redemption, and he's a great person to model after. So then it says, Ruth just happened to enter into Boaz's field. And of course, we talked about that last week. Something like that doesn't just happen to happen. God was behind that. Ruth enters into Boaz's field. Now we're going to get to know Boaz. Let's look at verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. All right, now we can't skip over this detail. We're going to pause for a second and then keep going with the story. But this is the first thing it shows us about Boaz. He shows up in his field. Now, these are, he's been in Bethlehem. That's the town, okay? He's now left. He was in town that day. He leaves town, comes back out to his fields to kind of check up on his operations. He's got a manager. We'll meet him in a few minutes. There's a manager that runs his operation, and he walks out into his fields. It's like a guy who owns a factory walking out on the factory floor, or he's coming into one of his branches. He's come, this is his company, and he's talking to his people. These are like his employees. They work for him. They work in his fields. And look how he greets them. He says, the Lord be with you. Now, in Israel, this might not be a completely uncommon way to greet someone, but it definitely was not the norm all the time. And what he's saying here is more than just a generic, hey, God bless you all. It's more than that. If you look in your Bible or your Bible app, you'll see the word LORD is in all caps. When you see that, it's, it's hinting at what is happening in the Hebrew. It's not just the generic word LORD. If it's in all caps, it's referring to the actual personal name for the God of Israel, Yahweh. So he's saying, Yahweh be with you. So it is, why is it telling us this detail? I mean, there's a lot of details this story doesn't tell us. Why is it stopping to tell us how Boaz greets his people? It's revealing something about him. 
He's a man of faith. He follows Yahweh. But he's not just a man of faith. He's a man that doesn't keep that faith private. He's not just like, well, I, I have this faith, but I don't bring that into my, into my work, into my company. I, I don't bring that in there. No, he's open about it. Hey, Yahweh be with you. What happens next is actually rather uncommon. All the people that work for him say, may Yahweh bless you. That's part of their rhythm. Now, the people that are working in his fields could be a very mixed bag. It could be people that are Israelite, that maybe follow God, maybe, maybe didn't follow God originally. It could be people from other countries that are, that are living in Israel. Maybe they come from other religious backgrounds, worshiping other gods. But when Boaz comes and he says, the Lord be with you, Yahweh be with you, his people say back, May Yahweh bless you. That's their rhythm. Now, there's something significant that's revealing about, about um, Boaz, about his people, but also Boaz's leadership. And I want you to see this before we keep going. Okay, there's a burrito restaurant chain in South Florida that I like. Now, there's a lot of good ones, okay? But this one is called Moe's. Anyone been to Moe's before? Okay, many of you. Some cheering for Moe's. All right, yeah, you can give some cheers for Moe's. It's pretty good. And um, there's something unique about Moe's. They are trying to make kind of a, they have like a playful culture is kind of what they're establishing. So when you come in, you feel at home, you, you kind of enjoy yourself. And there's one way they cue you is when you open the door, they say something. Okay, what do they say? Welcome to Moe's. Oh, welcome to Moe's, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, did you notice that everyone said that with the exact same inflection? Okay. Like, there must be a video somewhere. Like, you can't say, welcome to Moe's. I mean, you got to say, welcome to Moe's, okay? Like, everyone says it the same way, okay? We know how they say it. And when you open the door, okay, part of the Moe's culture is that you're so greeted that you're welcome to Moe's, and you hear that when you open the door. Now, there's a plus side and, and a minus side to having this as part of your culture, Okay. Most of the time when I show up at a Moe's, and I, I've been in Moe's in different places, even in the country, and most of the time I open it, I get a boisterous welcome to Moe's. But if you ever open and you hear kind of a, welcome to Moe's. Okay, like, you know, like, okay, these poor people have been making a lot of burritos here, all right? And you're kind of starting to get concerned about how committed they are to the Moe's way, all right? And recently, and this is a rarity, but I went into a Moe's and I, I opened the door, okay? Crickets. I'm like, all right, I'm getting food poisoning while I eat here today or something, all right? You know, it, it communicates about the overall culture. They build a culture at Moe's that is, you're welcome and you're friendly, okay? Notice this in not a completely different way, very similar. Look at his rhythm with his employees. His faith's out front. Hey, Yahweh be with you, and then they all respond back, and may Yahweh bless you. That's become, like whether he did it intentionally or unintentionally, whatever, that's the culture of what happens in his fields. Okay, we're learning something about how Boaz leads. There's more. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reaper. So this is his manager. Whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. All right, now look at this. I wish we could spend more time on, on what we learn, all the things we're learning about Boaz, but I just want you to see. I mean, let's just kind of move through this quickly. If you've ever worked for someone, there are, are certain people that are like, as a boss, they're like tornadoes, okay? Like, they're not there all the time, but when they come through, like, stuff is flying around, okay? Like, if Boaz was a tornado leader, it would have, like, he's coming in from Bethlehem, and he's like, hey, I was driving in here, and you should have seen those fields. They were a disaster, okay? I don't know what you people are doing around here. There's barley everywhere. I mean, I've told you, nice and neat sheaves. Why can't they all be in a row? That's not how he, ha- not how he operates. He comes in, a warm greeting for everyone. Hey, may Yahweh be with you. There's this warm greeting. And then you see, he knows his people. They're not just his workers that he doesn't know, he doesn't care about. He knows them because he notices there's one that he doesn't recognize. He says, oh, who's this? So then we, so we're learning about Boaz, but we're also learning about Ruth here because look at what it shows us about Ruth's character. So the guy says, oh, um, Boaz, you've heard about this woman. Because remember, when Naomi came back, there was a buzz in Bethlehem. You've heard her story. You remember Naomi when she came back from Moab? Like after like being gone for like 10 years, you remember her, her Moabite daughter-in-law? That's her. So she came to the field, and this is what she did. She said, hey, would it be okay if I, if I gleaned? I'm, I'm going to come behind the reapers, you know, because I'm just going to leave whatever leftovers. I'm not going to try and take more than I should. I'll come behind them, but would it be okay? And he said, I let her glean. And he says, and I can't tell you, man, she's a hard worker. She started at the crack of dawn. You know, she's been working all day. She took one little break. I mean, not like this guy over here. He took a siesta for like three hours, okay? <laughs> not like him. I mean, Ruth's a hard worker. This is, this is an incredible young woman. Is, we're learning about these two. We're learning about her character. We're learning about his leadership and how he leads. Okay, one more thing you got to see before we, we kind of finish into the story because Ruth and Boaz are about to have their first encounter. It's a really good encounter. But you've got to see this before we go on. There's one more thing about Boaz and how he leads. If someone's gleaning in the field. They're taking crops from the owner for themselves, right? So that means if someone's gleaning in Boaz's field, Boaz is going to have less of a harvest because that needy person has taken it for themselves. Was Boaz there when Ruth entered the scene and asked to glean? Boaz was in Bethlehem. He was in town. So she came to the manager and asked the manager if she could glean. What did the manager do? Did he say, well, I mean, it's not my field. belongs to Boaz. I mean, I'll send an email to Boaz, but he's so bad at checking his email, okay? and Wait for him to get back. But, I mean, you can't, you can't, until I hear from the boss, that's not my call. you got to wait here. Whenever he shows up from Bethlehem and comes back, then we'll, we'll, I'll tell you whether you can glean or not. Is that what he did? Absolutely you can glean. You can take some of the crop that belonged to my boss, Boaz. How does this work? And is he ashamed to tell Boaz? Does he have to do like a long presentation and set up? Well, hey, there are people that need to glean in the community. And I let her, does he have to do this long setup? No. What does that mean? Boaz has set a culture already. He's answered this question already, empowered this manager 
to feel confident enough to say yes because he knows that's what Boaz would let her do. He, Boaz, as a leader, has said, okay, hey, this is God's law. We want to help the needy. So if there's ever someone that comes in and needs to glean, let them glean. That's how we operate around here. So the manager felt the total freedom to say, absolutely, Ruth, you can come in and glean. Here's where you go. We're learning more about Boaz because some of the things that are happening for Ruth are happening in his absence. Okay, let's keep going. And I want to read this next section. We'll pause for the day. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, hey girl. (laughs) Nah, I'm sorry. I just, (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. That's extra biblical. Slow interpretation. All right. Sorry. So then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Now watch this. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you. Watch this closely. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servants, though I am not one of your servants. Watch how Boaz handles her. He calls her, he says, my daughter. And, and you have to like, go back into ancient time period to interpret this. This is protective. This is really beautiful. He's saying, I don't want you to go to any other fields. You stay here. You will get all that you need. Your needs will be met, you'll be safe, you'll be protected, I want you to stay here. And then she is floored, literally. She bows before him and says, what have I done that I should get, gain this much favor in your sight? Now watch what he says. He says, I know your story and your character, what you've done for your mother-in-law. And he says, may the Lord bless you for what you've done. Now, let me just ask you a question. Who is it that's actually tangibly blessing Ruth? Who is it? Well, it's Boaz, but it's the Lord through Boaz. Do you see that? And this is, re- this is revealing Boaz's belief in how he operates with the Lord. You've got to see this. She says, why are you blessing me? And he's saying, because the Lord wants to bless you. What does that reveal about Boaz's thinking? God is a God who redeems situations like this and blesses situations like this. And since God does that, I want to be the instrument. So stay in my field. I want to be the instrument of God's redemption in her life. And he is going to be this pivotal person in her life. He's he's revealing, I am blessing you because it's God through me. He's revealing God is a redeeming God 
And I am the instrument of redemption in this person's life. Now here's what you've got to see. All that's happened until this point has happened in Boaz's fields when he was gone. This is revealing something powerful about what Boaz has been doing in this, in what Boaz is doing and what he sees as his role in, in the midst of this. Look at what has happened. Okay, first of all, was you can already see there's a built-in culture spiritually when he shows up and he says, may, may Yahweh be with you, and they respond, may Yahweh bless you. You already see that she was welcomed in when, when Boaz was gone. Why? Because he has a culture that reaches out to the hurting. You already see that his, his people are not hurting him. Look at this phrase. It's so key. Did you notice that he says to Ruth, um, have I not commanded my men not to touch you? Did you notice that? Well, when did he command that? Because he just met Ruth. So, but what has he just said? Hey, as you have witnessed, I have commanded my men not to touch you. What does that reveal? This is something that Boaz did at some other time. He pulled in all of his, the people who worked in his field, all the men, and said, hey, I don't know what fields you've worked in before. I don't know how those fields operated, but let me tell you how the fields of Boaz operate. It will never happen that a woman will be abused, will be, whether it's verbally, physically, or sexually, that will never happen in a field of Boaz. Am I understood? And he has set that culture ahead of time. I don't care how that operates or what the little systems are in the other fields. In this field, that will not happen. And he's so confident of that culture that he's built that he can look at Ruth and and he just showed up and he can say, hey, as you can see, none of my men touched you, did they? Because that's a culture that he's set. What Boaz knows is he's the instrument of redemption, but it's not just him personally because most of this, the beginnings of this redemption that's happening in Ruth's life happened in his absence. He's using as a leader, so much bigger than that, he's used his influence to set a whole culture of redemption so that when anyone comes into the sphere that he influences, redemption happens. Are you following me? There's a a lot that's been written in the last 15, 20 years about the importance of corporate culture. And, and what it's communicating is this idea that culture happens. It's just what we do as humans. It's just there. There's culture in your family. There's culture in your friend group, in your neighborhood. There's culture in the classroom that you are teaching in, in the school, in the workplace, the department, the company, the branch. There's culture there. It's just, it is. And they say it's almost like, it's like the water in the fishbowl. If fish had the ability to, like, discover things, water might be the last thing they would discover. Because it's so, in, it's just flowing through them. It just, it's there. It's going through their gills and all through their bodies. They're swimming around in it. I mean, it's taken for granted. But it's, in, the water's, like, maybe the most important part. If your fish tank has got polluted water, the fish are going to be unhealthy. If it's got toxic water, they're going to die. You need clean water. That's like the culture. But sometimes if the culture is not handled with intentionality, it can be creating a sickly company or a sickly family or a sickly friend group or may just be killing it. 
but it's sometimes so hard to discern. It's like this. Um, over the weekend, uh, Rebecca was gone one afternoon, and so it was just dad time with my two kids. And so I did what all dads should do in that time. We built a fort. Got a little card table, some chairs, a bunch of blankets, okay. And I was way more into the fort than my kids were, okay. But it was an epic fort that we made. Okay, and my daughter, she's four, she's helping me. And then um, I went and got my son, he's about to turn three. And I brought him into the fort with me and we're sitting there in the fort. And I'm like, you know, really proud of this thing. And I look at him, I'm like, so buddy, what do you think of the fort? And he goes, where is it? Buddy, okay, this is the fort. You're, you're in the fort. Okay, I'm like emotionally crushed by this, okay? I'm like, you're in the fort, buddy. And he's like looking at the blankets like, I know that's a blanket, okay? I'm pretty sure that's a chair. So I pick him up and I bring him outside of the fort. I'm like, this is a fort, buddy. This is an important thing for you to understand, okay? This is what a fort is, okay? That's like culture. You're in it, and so sometimes we don't see what's around us. But here is how you are commissioned, Christian. You're commissioned to go into all of your spheres, family, friends, neighborhoods, the, the department that you work in at work, your team, your store, your, your, your company, your school, your department, okay, the, the, the firehouse, the, fire, the police station, all around, every sphere you go into, you are to go into and influence the culture. Let me tell you how, how it puts it in the New Testament, okay, this is 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 15. Let me just read it to you. It's going to be up here. Listen to this. For we, Christians, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You are taking the aroma with you of Christ. Who's Christ? The Redeemer. You are taking the aroma of redemption with you. Have you ever walked by a Cinnabon? Evil, evil Cinnabon. Do you know that they actually build their stores and they put the ovens as close to the entrance of the stores as they can? Do you know they do that on purpose? It's wicked. I actually heard that they take like the oven hoods, you know, to pump... The, the air that out of the store, they actually have like the smallest, measly, lamest oven hoods they can get away with legally. So it wafts out into the mall and the airport and alluring us in like a siren to get a Cinnabon, okay? Okay, the aroma that Christian, we are bringing an aroma with us, wafting through whatever the sphere we go into. What is the aroma? It's the aroma of Christ, the Redeemer. That is what we are taking into our spheres. That's, the sphere, that's, the, that's how we're supposed to influence our spheres. So here's the question. The question that we've got to leave this passage, if we're saying, okay, we've looked at redemption. The first couple weeks in the series, we talked about how we need redemption. But it's now turning, saying, okay, you've, you've identified with Ruth and Naomi. Here's how you wait for redemption. But now pay attention to Boaz because here's your part in God's redemptive work. And the first thing we learn about Boaz is he knows how, as a leader, to set a culture of redemption. So here's the question for us. What's the culture of your field? What's the culture in your spheres of influence? 
Does that have the aroma of Christ in your home? Are you bringing the aroma of Christ into your friend group? Are you bringing the aroma of redemption into the office that you work in, the store that you work in, the company that you work in, the department that you work in? Are you bringing, are you influencing that culture to be redemptive? You say, I don't know how to do that. Let me just give you three things that we saw Boaz do to figure out how to do in our spheres of influence. Consider these three ways to set culture. Here's the first one. Set a culture that reaches the lost. Do you notice what Boaz did? His faith was, his faith was out front. He wasn't afraid to bring his faith boldly in the place that he worked. He said when he greeted them, may Yahweh be with you. And it set culture because they knew how to respond. May Yahweh bless you. He brought his faith out into the open. It wasn't just something private. It wasn't just my faith is something I do on the weekend when I attend church and when I sit in my community group. No, his faith was lived out every single day. His faith was brought into the spheres where he was operating and where he could influence. Now you say, well, you don't understand. I'm in the public sector, so I can't really, I can't do that. Well, first of all, live a model of redemption there. Live as a, a model so that when people are around you, that, that sense of that redemptive spirit is around you. The sense of who Jesus is is all around you. But also, don't miss the opportunities you do get. One of the, the greatest verses about sharing your faith in the New Testament comes out of the epistles of Peter where it says, don't miss, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. So that moment when the higher-ups pull you aside and say, hey, we just want to talk with you for a minute about what's happening in your department. I mean, you guys are seeing a lot of success. What's going on? What are you doing well? We want to learn so we can pass it on. Well, you say, well, I could talk about all the management techniques and the leadership strategies, and oh, we just follow the books. You could do that, or you could say, hey, um, I could talk with you about some of that, but here's the real thing. Honestly, the most important thing that grounds me is my faith. My faith in Jesus. Because that drives me to be, have integrity. It, it, it humbles me, so I, I'm always trying to learn, but it's really my faith. You say, oh man, I don't know, because the higher-ups are going to be like, whoa, okay, buddy, that's fine, we'll go talk to him. You say, like, I, I mean, that could be the difference of like a promotion and advancing my career or not. I'm not sure I want to give it up for that moment. Well, I, I guess then you just have to ask yourself a question. What's brought you that success? Is it your management skills or the hand of God? Because I would much rather lean into how far the hand of God can take me than how far my own management leadership skills can take me. Don't miss those opportunities when they do surface. But some of you in the private sector, some of you have more influence than you're leveraging. Some of you are like Boaz's and you, you run a company or a department and you can find your way to live out your faith boldly. You can find your way to come alongside that hurting person. Of course, not being rude or forceful or beating them over the head with a Bible. You can be humble. You can be gracious. But it takes courage. Or maybe just simply inviting someone to church with you. You say, look, I, I just, I'm not really good at that. I don't do that. Okay, just try this tomorrow morning. Try this. Go into where you work and just say, just say to someone, hey, so what'd you do over the weekend? 
well, I mean, I watched the games, the, the, the playoffs, and I mowed the lawn. And yeah, we just kind of laid low and hung out. You know, what'd you do? Well, I did this and that, but um, you know what? We, my family goes to church on the weekend because I love my church. You got to hear what we're doing this and this. And, and you have students, right? Oh, you got to come to this camp. You guys should come sometime. We'd love for you to have you sometime. Oh, hey, I mean, I'm not a church-going kind of person. You, you, you know me. I, I, I don't know. Oh, hey, no pressure, man. Just want you to know about it. What have you just done? You just planted a seed. So one day when there is pain and brokenness in their life, they're going to come back around and say, hey, um, can I talk to you for a second? Hey, what time does your church meet? I, I'd like to come sometime. Don't miss the opportunity. You're taking the aroma of Christ with you. Set that culture. Here's the second one. Set a culture that heals the pain. Boaz sets such a culture that when he's absent, people who are, are in pain and have needs, his people already know they're welcome to glean. What if you leveraged your influence to figure out how your sphere can help the needy? What if you did like some kind of modern day gleaning? What do you mean? What if you didn't harvest all the way to the edges of your crops? What if you left just some of it left over for the needy? Like what if you planned out your budget so some went to initiatives that help the needy in our community? What if you left some of your budget saying, hey, because we also want to provide services for those who can't afford it. Set a culture that heals the pain. And here's the last one. Set a culture that engages the brokenness. Regardless of what the broken systems were in the other fields around them, Boaz said, but that's never going to happen in my fields. You all understand that? He set that culture strongly. Hey, every one of us, you know in your industry, there's that way that companies cut corners to get a little bit more from the, from the consumer. Pushes into that gray area or just flat out cheats. I watched um, a, a show one time and it was basically like a live reality sting operation on refrigerator repair companies. And it was in some town up north, and basically this, this family um, allowed them to do it, and so this, they came in, they videoed the whole thing, and they had a licensed uh, refrigerator repairman go, and, and he made sure that it was working perfectly, the refrigerator was working perfectly, and then he just opened up in the back and just um, made one wire come loose, okay, just unscrewed like one wire, so that all you had to do is reattach it and the refrigerator would work again. And so this is some, like, city up north or whatever, and so this family called these refrigerator repairmen, and, um, and, they, and each one that came in, six out of the seven said, oh, well, lady, you got all kinds of problems, and I know nothing about refrigerators, but it was something like, you've got this refrigerate bivalve coupling in the back that's worn out, and it's going to have to be replaced, I mean, that's going to be 1500 bucks easy, and then you've got this, you know, bilateral engine component in the back nodule that's all burned out, I'm going to have to replace that as well. Okay, and, and each one knew better but upsold them. And so then all of a sudden, the video cameras would come out, and the licensed guy would come out, and, and you should have seen the reactions. One guy was like, no, it is the coupling in the back. It's broken. Another guy's like, oh, my company makes me do it. I don't know why. I'm forced to do this. Another guy ran. He just ran out of the room. Okay, fled. And finally, they found a company that just said, hey, lady, I, it's just a wire in the back. I tighten it up for you. You know whatever that is in your industry? Don't be a part of that broken system. Say, that's not happening in my fields. We're not going to do that here. 
whatever the broken systems, maybe it's a system of discrimination. Hey, that's not happening under my watch. That's not happening here. Have a, set a culture where you're reaching the lost. You're, you're healing the pain. You're engaging the broken systems and saying, we're not going to be a part of that. Send the aroma of redemption into your sphere. Why? Because here's what, here's what happens when you do that. And I just want to close with this. You say, look, I don't have a lot of influence. I'm, I'm a shift manager. Well, that's your sphere then. So make that shift. Here's how we're going to do it on my shift. This is what we're going to do. And you know what's going to happen then once that culture is set, your assistant shift manager gets promoted to a, to a shift manager, and then they set that culture on their shift. And then all of a sudden that starts going as you're, as you're working with the different employees. It's starting to change the culture of the whole store. And then if you become a manager and then you train up other managers and then they go to other stores, maybe multiple stores in the region of the company start shifting the culture and they all start carrying that same aroma. And before long, you might be changing a whole region. Or you're in a classroom and you say, look, I don't run the school, but I run this classroom. And this is how we're going to operate in this classroom. And you've got a teacher aide that's all of a sudden going to be a teacher across the hall from you. And then that person, he or she, can carry that aroma into their classroom across the hall. And now all of a sudden, maybe before long, an entire grade has the same culture that you've built into it. And before long, maybe it takes over a school. And then all of a sudden, that school, an, an associate a principal goes over here and gets promoted to be a principal over here. And now you might be affecting a whole school system. Or you're a business owner. And you say, I'm going to influence this whole company. And as this whole company is getting, and you say, hey, this is how it happens in my fields. And in, that, in your fields, in your company, you set that culture. That may just influence the industry. Okay, church, because what we're saying is our, we're setting our sights on seeing South Florida transformed. Here's how it happens. It's not just by growing and becoming a bigger church. If we grow and become a bigger church, but we all think that our faith is just lived out when we gather together, who cares? What have we accomplished? It's when you and I realize that what this is that we're doing together, we are a factory that is pumping out world changers into spheres all over South Florida, influencing stores and schools and classrooms and whole industries. And as we continue to go out and influence, taking the aroma of Christ, the power of the gospel, and a redemptive culture spreading through the industries of South Florida, that's when you see an entire city transformed. This is how you and I, all of us, are a part of God's redemptive work here in our city. So let's go to work this week. Reach the lost. Heal those who are in pain. Engage the brokenness in our society. And let's watch what God wants to do through us and what I believe is going to be something historic. And maybe you're sitting here and saying, the reality is I, I'm the one right now who's broken and in deep pain and I just feel lost. Like, man, that's, that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm trying to find answers. I'm just lost. Well, can I tell you some good news? There's someone even better than Boaz. 
There's a better Boaz. His name is Jesus Christ. And here's how he redeems. He doesn't just say, hey, come into my fields and and your, your poverty will be helped. He says, how about this? How about I trade places with you? And I take your poverty. I take your pain and your brokenness and your lostness on myself. That's the story of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. He came to die to take all of our brokenness and our sin, to pay for it on the cross, rose again from the dead, so that we could find forgiveness and be found by God. Maybe today you're found by the Redeemer. Is that you? Here's what the first steps look like. I'm just going to lead a simple prayer. That could be you watching online. It could be you sitting right here in these chairs. I'm going to lead a simple prayer. And if that's you, I just want you to pray along in your heart. Find forgiveness. Let this be the beginning chapters of your story, not the end. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you want to put your faith in Jesus today, then I'm going to just pray a simple prayer. God hears what's in your heart, so take these words, make them your words to God silently in your heart. Just repeat them in your heart, surrendering to God. Just pray this. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for working powerfully on my behalf through your death on the cross. Thank you for wanting to redeem me out of this situation. Thank you for forgiving me, God, and saving me. Now I give you my life. I want to be part of the redemptive mission that you're on. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.